Okay, in what I suspect is unlikely to be the last episode we do on collective defined contribution pensions, this podcast explores how they could be a solution to the challenges posed by the decline of final salary pensions and the retirement income uncertainties of pension freedom. I hope you enjoy it. So, Simon Eagle from Willis Towers Watson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Thank, thanks for having me. So, oh, well, I'm delighted that we're able to have this conversation. And I've had in mind to do something on collective fine contribution for a while. We'll get onto that in a moment. In fact, someone recently emailed me, a podcast listener recently emailed me and asked if I could do something on CDC. And just at about the same moment, I read Henry Tapper's blog when he was talking about the debate that you'd had with John Ralph. We've had John on the podcast as well before now as well. So it's all, it's all, it's all friends together here. And I have to say, Henry's write-up of that debate you had with John was pretty complimentary towards your performance. I think uh, general sense was you'd acquitted yourself pretty well. So I jumped on that and asked if you could come and do this recording with me so I'm delighted you've accepted so thank you for that but look just just to kind of kick off because I mean clearly some people know who you are there are possibly some who don't just just give us give us the kind of quick introduction to Simon Eagle from Willis Towers Watson. Yeah so I'm a pensions actuary I've been at Willis Towers Watson for 21 years working as a pensions actuary in that time most of the time I've been doing what most pensions actuaries do working on defined benefits pensions but in the last five years I have also worked on collective defined contribution pensions. How did that come to be? How did you get into that? So I stumbled into it really. I had been an advisor to Royal Mail Group for many years and then it's it's already in the public domain, it's already well documented that in 2017 they're engaging with their main union CWU about pensions change for Royal Mail workers and the conclusion of the negotiation was that they wanted to jointly campaign for CDC. So as their actuary, I needed to quickly become an expert on CDC and try to help make it happen for them. I was sceptical at first because I was used to defined benefits and used to individual DC, and I hadn't really looked at CDC or defined ambition or other versions of it before. And you know, my initial thought was, if it's so good, why has no one else done it in the UK? That That kind of thing. But, but then the more I looked at it, the more I thought, okay, I can see this is this is quite good in this way and that, that's quite good and okay, there's a challenge here, but I can think of a solution to that. So the more I looked at it, the more keen I became on it and the more I thought it's a good way of providing pensions. And I kind of realised that as well as wanting to help Royal Mail and see that WU bring it in for Royal Mail workers, I wanted to see if I could help bring it in for other companies and workforces in the UK as well. So it became a bit more of a, I guess you were going beyond your sort of basic commercial remit there. I guess, was there an element of sort of intellectual curiosity and wanting to change the world a bit in, 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 in how you were going about this? Just talk a bit about that. Um, and by the way, I just want to kind of let comment. I can hear a bit of background noise there. So uh, any any listeners coming who hear Simon did warn me, you're having some work done on your fence, is that right? I'm afraid so, Tom. Yeah, it's always on the worst day that happens, isn't it? <laughs> okay, look, and, and, and listeners won't know this, but this is actually our second attempt at recording this because we ran into some technical problems when we tried earlier in the week. So my apologies to listeners if there is any background noise. But anyway, look, Simon, just just please push on. Uh, yeah, so you're asking Tom, was there? 
a you know an element of intellectual curiosity there and yeah there definitely was I mean I I like to think I've always been a, a creative type I've always kind of looked for opportunities to, to to do a bit of good in the world and um, this seemed to perfectly fit that bill it was it was creating a new kind of painters in the UK which most people never get a chance to to work on and it was something that I believe could improve pensions for millions of people in the UK and beyond. I mean, there's interest in this from outside the UK as well. So I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can here. I'm going to mm. work on it and see, see where it leads. And it's, it's an enormous endeavor. I mean, this is, this is a really, this is a fundamental change to UK pensions to bring in CDC. But I thought, well, I'll, I'll just see what I can do. And, you know, I, was, I found myself, you know, at the center of it, but obviously working with lots of other people on it, you know, a hundred people or so within Willis Towers Watson have worked on this in some shape or form, and I've engaged with over a hundred outside Willis Towers Watson on it as well. So it's been it's been a, a major part of my work in the last five years. That's really interesting, and I think it's worth just dwelling on the context for a moment. And I know for some listeners this will be familiar territory, but I think it doesn't hurt to repeat that we've we've been on this journey from DB to DC, largely. I mean, that's the direction of travel. There's very little in the way of new DB provision in the UK, certainly outside the public sector. And even there, there's dilutions going on all the time. We had pension freedoms in in 2015. So two really big kind of changes in the landscape of pensions. I think it's fair to say that pension freedom initially landed into a bit of a vacuum in terms of, well, okay, so how do we deal with this? And I think the FCA has been playing catch up on this ever since. It was interesting when I spoke to Guy Opperman about this on a podcast we did a, a couple of months ago. Yeah, He was quite disparaging over how the FCA has responded to this. And the DWP had put out a call for evidence on decumulation back in the summer of this year because Guy wanted to kind of drive, drive the agenda on a bit there. There's this sense that for all the benefits that pension freedoms have brought, that challenge of managing income in retirement, managing investment assets in retirement, is still pretty problematic for a lot of people. Quite a challenge. So he wanted to address the, obviously he was looking at the occupational sector as a pensions minister. He's not responsible for FCA regulated pension schemes. But there was clearly that appetite for, for some kind of middle ground solution. And, you know, my sense is that possibly a collective defined contribution scheme for, for decumulation could be a really important development in this landscape, in this context, of this challenge of pension freedoms and decline of DB. So, sorry, I've been going on a bit there. Just pick it up from there, Simon. What are your thoughts around how this could work and how it's going to solve problems for people? So I, I agree, Tom. There is, I mean, we have been through change in UK in recent decades and there is there is kind of a big a big gap in options available for, for, for people retiring on DC POS. I mean, when the freedoms came in in 2015, there was talk of there would be innovation in the industry to provide new options to people, but we haven't, we haven't seen a lot in the seven years since. Mm. There have been a lot, a lot of surveys of individuals as to, as to what they want from their, from their pension provision, and most people say an income in retirement. But at the moment, the only way to get that, if it's you know, insuring an income for life, is by buying an insured annuity, and only about 10% of DC retirees mm. are presumably because they're perceived as expensive and that was part of the reason for the freedoms wasn't it that the government didn't want to force people to buy insured annuities anymore so, so there seemed to be a real gap and so, so, so the, the, the kind of default option for a lot of people is to draw down but of course that's 
that's a very difficult thing to do. In effect, it's taking on what Bill Sharp called the toughest, nastiest problem in finance. It's taking it on for yourself and applying it throughout old age. So even age 80, age 90, if you're lucky enough to be alive still then, you still need to, 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 to manage your investments, make your investment decisions, choose your pace of drawdown, an incredibly difficult thing to do. And so the way I, I see it at the moment as an industry, we're not providing the majority of DC savers with what they need from the point of retirement. So we need to come up with new solutions and CDC is one potential new solution. So it, it, in a nutshell, it provides an income for life. So a bit like an insured annuity in that way. But the big difference is there isn't any guarantee in the level of that annuity. The level will vary depending on how the scheme does, so how the assets perform, how long members live, etc. But the kind of reason for being is that because it doesn't have an insured guarantee, it can invest more in return-seeking assets, so equities and illiquids and things, especially earlier on in retired life. So what it's doing through that is seeking to outperform an insured annuity. So based on based on some, some, some rough figures that we've done at WW, based on a particular design and assumptions for future asset returns and things, we're estimating that from the point of retirement, CDC income will be about 50% higher, or expected to be about 50% higher than an insured annuity. But that 50% varies. It might start at that level, but if, if the scheme's doing well, it might, uh, better than expectations, it might increase to 60% above an annuity. If it's behind track with his assets, so if people are living longer than expected, it might reduce to 40% above an annuity or 30%, or it could even fall below below an annuity level, which it has to be able to do because this is a form of DC and this, this is a consequence of it having no guarantee. So it, it's for people who want to want to at least try to get more out of their money than they would get with an insured annuity. Okay, lots of questions then. So thank you for that. And just to clarify one point there, you're talking about an income of around 50% higher than an insured annuity. Now, if I'm a 65-year-old today, I can buy an annuity, obviously much better deal than I could have got a couple of years ago. But an insured annuity today might pay me six, seven, maybe even seven and a half thousand pounds a year if I'm buying a level annuity. Uh, clearly, significantly less if I'm buying an inflation-linked annuity. So, first of all, you're talking about an inflation-linked annuity rather than a level annuity, correct? Yeah, I'm comparing like like with like. So comparing a CDC pension targeting inflation increases with an insured annuity guaranteeing inflationary increases. Okay, but even so, you're talking about up to 50% more income, smooth, sometimes more, sometimes less. I appreciate that. So let's say I'm buying an inflation-linked annuity of, say, I might get 4% today. I've actually not checked the numbers on what, what inflation-linked annuities are offering today. I've only looked at the level annuities, but I guess it's probably around 4%. So if that were the case, you'd be saying, oh, yeah, well, we can do maybe 6% and inflation-linked income at that level, yeah? Exactly, yeah. Okay, and that's payable for life, however long that might be, but it's not guaranteed. So I'm relying on you. If I'm, if I'm the investor, I'm relying on you or the provider to manage those assets competently and to balance off investment returns and shifting mortality experience to give me a smoother, smoothest ride as possible. And to be fair, not just to me, but to everybody else in the scheme as well. Can I just check one point? Let's just start at the front end. How would I come into this? Is this something you'd see being open to 
take my former employers. I've got a SIP with Hargreaves Lansdowne and I want a retirement income. Can I transfer my SIP fund from Hargreaves Lansdowne to this collective defined contribution scheme and, 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 and then it would go into a pool with lots of other SIP investors? Is that how it would work? So this is because I'm from the kind of trust side side of things and trustees and that kind of what this is where I need to expand my knowledge a bit, Tom. I'm kind of less involved in the in the SIP and contract based side of things. The way I see it is, and we're talking here about specifically about a certain kind of CDC, uh, which people in the industry call CDC decumulation only. Isn't isn't a very good name for it. It's an industry term. But um, the way I see it is, it could be offered by by master trusts. Right. Any individuals accumulating. DC in that master trust would have an option to buy the CDC pension at retirement or someone outside of the master trust could potentially kind of transfer into it at the point of retirement to buy their CDC pension. Okay, so that would be me with my Hargreaves Lansdowne pot transferring it across into the master trust at the point of retirement and pooling my money with other people. And the nature of a master trust is you've got multiple employers in there. So a big pool of members with very little relationship to each other other than the fact that their employer happens to select that provider for their accumulation experience. And you'd be flipping that over and saying, right, well, this is now a decumulation pool of money. But presumably, it would have to be, you know, the answer's in the question. We're talking about a trust-based solution here, right, rather than some sort of contract-based solution. Is the trusteeship important in this? Uh, yes, because because there are there are judgments to be made in, in running this, uh, which which comes comes down to the way in which the income is varied as the scheme progresses. So the way that would work is each year an assessment is done to compare the current value of assets in the scheme with the cost of paying the income for life at the current rates with the current rate of increases, and that cost needs to be assessed using assumptions about the future, so future asset returns, life expectancy, etc. So a judgment needs to be made on those things, so those assumptions. You need uh, a group of people who you can, you, you can trust to, to make that assessment in, in the most balanced way, in, in an unbiased way. And that, that is what trustees are for. They have a fiduciary duty to the members of the, of, of the trust. Yeah, yeah I, I see it working in, in that way. So some others have raised another possibility, which uh, I say I haven't looked into a lot yet, but possibly this could be done also as an FCA regulated product, so with, with a management board making those decisions. Possibly even it could be uh, the industry could provide CDC accumulation through both of these rooms, just in the way that individuals who want drawdown can get it through a trust or through um, a contract-based arrangement as well. Right, because with the best will in the world, trustees are not competent, in my experience. Very nice people, very clever, competent people, but they are not competent to make the kind of really complex decisions that you're talking about here. Essentially, they're going to be drawing on the advice of people like you, Simon, the really big brains in the room, the actuaries who are doing all the hard sums for them and going to the trustees and saying, this is what we think you can do. They're going to rely on the scheme advisors. And, and that being so... You know, you could arguably just as effectively do this in, a, in an insured arrangement with a governance committee, couldn't you? Well, this this is the thing that, again, is kind of going beyond my normal arena, the, the trust world. So I, something that I want to look into a bit more to understand better, I agree with you absolutely in, in the trust 
world, the trustees would get advice from a scheme actuary and would make a decision having received that advice. That that model is already in. So part of the other background of the CDC is that the government has already brought in laws to allow single employers or corporate groups to open CDC schemes for their own workforce in the way that the Royal Mail are doing. Mm. An aspect of that law is that trustees must make these decisions on actual assumptions having received actual advice. So I'm, I'm seeing it as, as, the, as the same model could be used, but in a master trust arrangement, which needs an, an kind of another, another layer of the law to allow that, which is it's a layer that the government has said that they want to facilitate. They want to engage with industry to see how that could be done and then facilitate in time. And in fact, um, the latest from DWP is that they expect to consult on that in the next couple of months. This is the way I, I see it going, but I can see also that it's worth exploring the FCA route as well. Okay, so and that consultation will be a direct output from the call for evidence they took back in the summer, right? Yeah, well, that call for evidence was on decumulation, wasn't it? So, so one aspect of that was CDC. Yeah. I think this one coming out in two months is a separate team within DWP. So they have a CDC team headed by Julian Barker, and they'll be consulting specifically on CDC for multi-employers or master trusts. And it's not just decumulationary. There's another model of CDC, which is what we call whole of life, where individuals build up CDC pensions while they're still working and then retire on, on those. So, so I believe the consultation is going to cover whole of life and decumulation only for multi-employers or master trusts. So it, there's a bit of overlap with the one in the summer, but I think, as I said, I, th- I, think, I think it is a separate consultation. Okay, no, that's really interesting. Um, and what I also find interesting is that this is being driven by the DWP for understandable reasons, but that potentially, just picking up on what you said there, means that potentially this would be occupational pensions legislation that would enable this. And so potentially we could have a situation where master trusts and occupational schemes could provide this CDC decumulation vehicle in a way that my old friends at Hargreaves Lansdowne couldn't because they're regulated by the FCA. They're running contract-based pensions. They might feel a bit uncomfortable about that if you guys come up with this amazing middle ground product solution that takes problems away from people and allows them to more efficiently draw down on their retirement assets. We could see sales of SIP drawdown uh, taking a bit of a knock from that. Well, it sounds like they ought to be looking at their own versions of this and engaging with FCA on it, and potentially we will end up with two different routes through which it could be provided. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, like, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here, but this is this is their problem, not yours. So... Uh, Let me just kind of test a couple of other things on this that I think are are worth exploring. So, well, let's just stay with the legislation for a moment. From what you said, it would require further new legislation to make this possible in the format that you're currently describing as as an occupational pension solution. Would that be primary legislation? Could it be done under secondary legislation? It's secondary legislation. So the primary that came in a couple of years ago said that this will facilitate single employer CDC, but then it had a section at the end that said, but but regulations can allow it for multi-employers and master trusts as well. So I believe the intention is, is to just have a second layer of secondary legislation in order to allow this. Okay, that's really interesting. So this could happen relatively 
relatively quickly once once they've consulted on it and worked out what it is they actually want to legislate on. Yeah, so I think it could be possible that they, they might have a second consultation in the second half of next year about draft regulations in, in order to, 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 to allow this. And then who knows that the first one could be open maybe in 2024 uh, with a fair win, maybe 2025. Okay, so I mean that's really going to put the cat among the pigeons. You know, we've got we'd have pension dashboards at that point. We have all of a sudden these new vehicles, and if they're as good as you say they are, I think they're going to stimulate a lot of interest. I, I hope so, and, and there has I have seen other signs of innovation elsewhere. So I, I think CDC has given a bit of a kick up the backside to the industry to to get on and innovate, to to give people what they want, to fill this gap in what they want from from retirement. So I, I see that as a good thing. So look, let me let me check something else on this because this is good stuff. One of my current bugbears around pension legislation is the death benefits, okay? And I think that the rule that was introduced towards the end of 2015 that came in as part of the pension freedoms in 2015, whereby you can pass a large slice of your pension pot on outside the IHT estate, uh, IHT rules, inheritance tax rules. You get all the tax relief to build up your pension pot, it grows tax-free, and then you can pass it on to your kids pretty much tax-free. And they only pay income tax on the money when they draw it out, which if they're smart, they means they won't pay much tax on it. To me, that is just bonkers. But if I've got a SIP and I'm looking at those rules, I might think, well, CDC doesn't look quite so much fun to me. So just talk to me a bit about how you'd see the death benefits working under a CDC decumulation vehicle. Yeah, I've heard about. I listened to one of your other podcasts the other day, Tom, and I heard about that the issue with the death benefits. And I agree with you. I don't don't see any logic. For it. The way I see CDC working, I guess there are, there are two different ways an individual could provide for their dependents if, if, if they want to generate income from CDC. The first way is they could just spend part of their DC pot buying a CDC income for themselves for the rest of their lives, save the rest maybe in drawdown so that it is there to provide a, a bequest for their dependents if they, if they wish. And if they die before 75, as you say, then under the current tax treatment, it would be, be tax-free. The second option is, particularly if they have a spouse or partner, if they want to provide for that spouse or partner in their life, if they're to live longer mm. than the individual, it's, it's the same kind of kind of thing as you have with with insured annuities, where you can buy, for example, a pension where on your death, if you're survived by a spouse, that spouse gets an income of say half the rate of income that, that you were getting. Now, as I understand it, under tax rules, there wouldn't be any special tax treatment there. The spouse's income will be subject to income tax. Yeah. So you wouldn't have this bonkers tax treatment that you mentioned to provide for, for, for death benefits. That very generous treatment of death benefits, it's only, so it only applies if you die before 75, isn't it? So the, the majority of people would expect to live beyond then. Yeah, they would. You're right. Even post-75, the tax only kicks in at the point you draw the money out of the pension pot. So so initially, it does pass on tax-free to my children or whoever. And then they are liable for income tax on the money at the point they draw it out of the pension, which means that, you know, if they're cute, they can still game the system to a large extent in terms of how they, how they manage that asset and that income tax liability. And as you say, if you die before 75, well, hey, it's just tax-free. You know, we're recording this on the 9th of November, and we've got a fiscal event coming up soon, and inheritance tax is one of the things that's been flagged in that. So by the time people come to listen to this, it may be that the world will have moved on a bit. I also think you make a a, a good point that 
for some people, you know, there might be a degree of I'll park a bit of money in a sip and I'll just hold that as a bit of death benefit money for, for my kids or whatever. But the reality is for most people who've got just ordinary sized pots of money and maybe the low hundreds of thousands at most, or maybe even just a few tens of thousands of pounds, this isn't about IHT, this isn't about death benefits, this is about maximising my income in retirement for me and my spouse. And I think for that, the CDC solution potentially works very effectively. Exactly. It's, it's for those people who maybe have, have the state pension, don't have a lot of other, other sources of income in retirement, maybe they've got a DC pot of £100,000, maybe they're retiring in their late 60s, they're healthy, they don't know how long they're going to live. So they're thinking, how am I going to provide myself in later later life? I'm quite, quite near the, the poverty line. How am I going to sort that out? Well, I want I want to generate the, the best income I have, I, I, I can, but one, one that lasts for as long as I do. CDC pension ticks all those boxes. So it's, it's, it's not for everyone. It's not for someone who maybe unfortunately has a, is very ill in their 60s, has a low life expectancy, or it's not for someone necessarily who, who's very wealthy at the point of retirement and has lots of other sources of income. You know, there, there are large swathes of the population who would fit this, this bill of having to, to, to make their money go as far as they can to provide them with an income in retirement. Yeah, and I think the wealthy people in retirement are already, they're paying for a financial advisor. They're, they're By definition, they're not worried about their financial circumstances. It's just a question of how they can optimise their levels of comfort and their levels of bequest to their the next generation. So they do not need our help. They're doing all right, thank you, with the, the advice and support they're getting. And as you say, at the other end, it may not be suitable if you have a very low life expectancy or if you have a very small pot, in which case you might just take it all out in one go. And the problem with pension freedoms has always been the masses in the middle who have you know, some decent pension savings, but not enough to, to be able to comfortably manage a drawdown plan on it and you know, who need to maximise that income. Um, let, me, let me ask you what, one other question that I think has just been kind of on my mind around all of this, which is around, we talked a bit about transferring in, and I can see that's quite straightforward, but I can also see there's a risk that you get selected against. And people with really good life expectancy might want to jump into this scheme because they know they'll be the winners out of this. So if I'm in good health going into my 60s, I might think, well, this is a scheme for me, just like I might buy an annuity. But hey, this is better than an annuity. But still, the longer I live, the better I do out of the deal. If I'm in poor health, though, I might want to transfer out of the scheme. Now, so so, how would that work? Would you allow transfers out at all? The way I see it, you, you wouldn't allow transfers out. So it would be a bit like an issue annuity in that sense, in that once you are in the arrangement, it, it will provide you with an income for life, but you can't you can't change your mind once you're in it. Yeah, that makes sense, because otherwise you just get selected against as soon as people develop any kind of significant impairment to their life expectancy <laughs> they don't want their money back and then you lose your cost subsidies exactly and it's if if you had a transfer out option you'd have to assess people's health very thoroughly there'd be mm. costs of doing that it would just become very messy and complicated and to unpack that a bit so no i mean that makes sense to me when you talked earlier on about the increased returns those increased returns come through a combination of a more risk-seeking asset allocation where you're kind of generating higher returns on your portfolio, but also from the, as with a conventional annuity, with the mortality cross subsidies that you generate as you go along, right? 
Yes. So, so comparing, I mean, the 50% I mentioned is comparing to an issue of annuity mm. and that, that difference is, is all from those higher returns. In, in fact, we, we, we launched a CDC guide in 2020 and we had a, an analysis we published alongside it and we, we, we had kind of eight pages of details of how we come up with the figures. So we set out the asset strategy and the asset returns we were assuming. And if you buy an issued annuity, the way I actually see it's the way I see it is you're kind of locking into a certain rate of returns. There's kind of a, a rate of returns that underlies that annuity price. And uh, I think in 2020, when we looked at it, it was gilts less than half percent a year returns. So half percent a year less than, than what you could get on government bonds at the time. Now I think it's a it's gilts less a bit more in current strange markets that we're in in 2022. Whereas with growth assets at the time, we were saying you, you might expect returns on average over the long term of more like gilts, gilts plus 4%. While the money is in the growth assets rather than in, in, for that period, when you compare that to returns on annuity, it's kind of 4% or 5% a year higher expected returns. And if you add those up over a number of years, that adds up to the 50%. That, that basically is where that 50% comes from in terms of comparison with drawdown. So that's that's a harder comparison because drawdown is a fundamentally different kind of vehicle where you just have your own pot and you need to spread it over your own lifespan and that lifespan is unknown. So, so one way to compare it is you could have your own drawdown pot and invest it in pretty much the same way as the CEC vehicle is doing. So you could try to replicate it yourself, but you'd have a 50-50 chance of running out of money before you die or of dying with some money left. And if the point of your pot is to generate income for your retirement, then, then that, that's that's not a good outcome either. So either way, it hasn't worked very well. And then people talk about kind of safe drawdown rates where there's a very low chance of running out of money. And I saw some, some stats from the Institute of Fatty of Batteries on that a while ago. And this, the safe drawdown rate was so low, it was less than if you were to just buy an insured annuity. So there wasn't any sense in, in drawing down if you're in a very, very high probability of not running out of money before you die. So, so, so when you compare CDC to drawdown, the, the big thing is that it does pull longevity. It, in effect, what it's doing is it, it uses the money where it's needed. So those who live longer get paid an income for longer. Those who unfortunately live shorter get paid an income for shorter. So the, the fund as a whole needs enough money for average lifespans. But for each individual, it pays over their lifespan, whatever whatever that is. Okay, no, that makes sense. So in, in a sense, you're, you're, you're taking the best of each. You're taking the, the investment returns from the drawdown and the, the mortality cross-subsidies from the annuities and you're crashing them together in one product that gives people a bit of both from those. Can I just, just check? So there is this issue, and we've seen it in, in, in European pensions. I'm trying to remember, I think it was in Denmark? but possibly it was Holland, where they've actually had to dial down people's income distributions a bit. And and some people have made great uh, issue out of this. That, Look, you know, people have had their pension incomes cut. And I mean, mostly they've managed to deliver upward, you know, rising incomes. But there is this risk that, you know, you actuaries or your trustees might have to come to the members one day and say, look, I'm sorry, you're going to get paid a bit less this year than you were last year. And that will upset people a bit. So, so there's definitely a communications issue around all of this that is not to be 
underestimated how people how people's expectations are managed is really important in this so have you given any thought to how the proposition would be communicated to people at the outset how you'd manage their expectations around what they're going to get out of this product in, in when they go into it in the first place yeah it's a great point Tom I agree with you entirely that good communications are really really important for CDC to be to be done well and that was one of the main learnings from I think it was it was a Dutch experience you, you mentioned earlier it was one of the main learnings from, from from there was that when they so they had to cut pensions in some Dutch CDC schemes after the global financial crisis so there some some cuts in 2009 and a lot of the members reacted saying what do you mean cutting the pension this is guaranteed isn't it and you know it just hadn't people hadn't understood what, what, what the nature of the pension they were being given was so there's, there's a clear learning point there there's also parallels with the equitable life crisis from the 1990s um it was being run in some ways as if there was no guarantee but people believe that there was a guarantee and in fact it was it was then judged that there was a guarantee as well but but there wasn't enough money to, to meet that so 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 communications is a key learning point from both of those stories and it needs to be extremely clear from the outset um, that this pension is not guaranteed it is a variable pension and as well as saying that i think there need to be illustrations so when someone is considering whether to buy one of these there could be an illustration saying if if for example growth assets fall to half of their current value and and don't recover and aren't expected to recover it might mean that rather than your pension increasing each year in line with inflation it might it might reduce for a couple of years and then be kind of a level pension from that point and there could be a couple of figures around that so that people see an illustration of of what it means to not have a guarantee but presumably you wouldn't want this being only distributed by financial advisors because as soon as you make it an advice only product you know there's a lot of additional cost and friction introduced into the system presumably you'd want this to be something people could with the appropriate risk warnings and explanations they could just sign up to as a natural transition from accumulation to decumulation right exactly yeah it's this is for people who, who don't have the wealth at retirement to afford advice from from ifas so so it doesn't really work if if they need ifa advice to, to, to buy one um so the communications do need to be good that's a challenge that dwp are well aware of and where i see it one of the probably actually the key challenge for them to explore in their next consultation is the requirements around the communications of this at, at the point of purchase um what information is the consumer going to see and how if, if you can imagine a future market where there are a number of master trusts providing cdc in the accumulation how will individuals compare those different options it might be that the one starts with a higher income but it's taking more investment risk in order to generate that higher income and so the individual needs to know yes it's, it's it starts higher but it's more variable in compensation for that so, so, so they, need, they need to judge do i want to to really go for it to have a good chance of a great income with my money or do i want to play it a bit safe and go for a cdc scheme that takes a bit of risk obviously more than a guaranteed annuity but doesn't doesn't really really aim very very high in terms of returns yeah really interesting and you know members might want to be able to make a judgment on the quality of the underlying investment management and yeah i can i can see there's going to be some challenges there in terms of particularly if we find end up in a world where multiple providers of decumulation CDCs are actively competing in the open market for customers' money. 
and we see, you know, we've got the we've got the dashboard coming, so we might see higher mobility of pension assets, uh, certainly higher visibility of pension assets. So the regulatory controls on how these things are marketed and how they're sold and is going to be an interesting challenge in all of this. I agree. Yeah. So next steps, we've got this consultation coming out of the DWP. Did you say in a couple of months? Yes, that, that's that's the latest I heard. Yeah. And then possibly a further consultation next year, and with the following wind, you're hoping, stroke expecting, we might see these things become a reality around 2024. Yes. So, so for that consultation to come out in two months, I, I think it, I think this will have to be higher up on Lauren Trott's list as the new the new pensions minister. I think she'll have to approve the consultation before it can go out. Um, so I suppose there's a, it's, she's obviously new into this post. You know, there's a bit more question mark over the timing of the consultation. But uh, yeah, I, d- I did hear it should still be within a couple of months from now. Well, she's obviously getting on top of her brief. I saw her on the politics show post Prime Minister's questions earlier on today, and she's looking a pretty assured performer. I think she's she she seems like a pretty competent replacement for for Guy Opperman. So yeah, hopefully she'll she'll get around to this pretty quickly. And I think as and when that consultation comes out, I think it's going to get a lot of interest and i think not just from proponents of cdc but perhaps also from some of those contract providers some of those existing drawdown providers who are going to feel a little anxious about what this might do to their business plans going forward so fun and games to be had i think yeah so maybe, maybe it will it will lead those other providers to, to look harder at what else they can do to you know other products they can they can provide stimulate a bit of competition and get them knocking on the fca's door saying can we do this please i, I hope so and it's all it would all result in the, in good it would provide individuals with, with new options better options for some of them for their retirement so it would be, it would be a good outcome if that's what we see good stuff Simon, thanks very much for talking to me today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.